Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hemsler, developmental interventionist. How are you tonight, Laura? Or today, I I should say. (laughs) Isn't it funny that old motor plan just kicks in for tonight instead of Mm -hmm. saying today, doesn't it? Yep. (laughs) I am fabulous, especially with my newly highlighted hair. Oh, are you blind again? I'm blonde again, yes. So I am very, I was trying to get it out of the reason I'm mentioning my hair, in case that seems a little off topic, trying to get it out of the way of the speaker for the phone so you can hear me today. (laughs) So anyway, I am in a weird mood. Can you tell already? Yeah. Coming off ASHA, we had a blast last week. Johnny went with me, and we had tons and tons of fun, and I got to meet so many people that listened to our little show, Kate. You just wouldn't believe it. Oh, well, I'm glad it was you and not me, but I'm glad they listened. Now, what would you do if people said to you, are you Kate Hensler? That would freak you out, wouldn't it? Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't like it. Well, I had the opposite reaction. I liked it, so it was a lot of fun. I had a a great, great, great week doing that. And I met uh, people that I've just previously known online, and a couple of those people are going to be our guests coming up uh, on future podcasts in December. We have Sharika, who's coming on from Easy Speak, which is an online magazine for speech-language pathologists. I think I talked about this on the show. I was in that last edition. Right. article on building verbal imitation, but she's coming on to talk about her great project, so that'll be fun. And I think it'll be cool to talk to a speech pathologist and somebody who sees toddlers in another country. So she's in Barbados, so that'll be that'll be cool. We should uh, see if we can do that show on location and go see her for that. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, good plan. <laughs> we'll see if we can slide that by. Okay, she's going to be on, and then Patty Hamaguchi's going to be on, and she's written a great book called uh, Childhood Speech, Language, and Listening Problems, uh, A Parent's Guide, or I'm not looking at that. I may have botched that title a little bit, but teachmetotalk.com is recommended as a resource for parents in that book, and she has been um, a fun source of encouragement for me uh, since the website started in 2008. So I got to meet her, so that was a lot of fun. And she's going to come on and talk about uh, receptive language and the connection with auditory processing and how important it is to identify issues in toddlers so that we can head off some of that, um, some of those academic things that might trip a child up once they become school age and then if we recognize it early enough in toddlerhood and start to address some of those things and just talk about that connection because I think a lot of times as speech language pathologists, ooh, I'm tripping over that word, we um, we don't think about auditory processing or receptive language as often as we should. And I know every single week we talk about it and talk about it and talk about it on this show. But it'll be great to hear somebody else talk about that and maybe teach us some new stuff. And she uh, sees all ages of children in her clinic. And, again, she's in California, and I think that'll be cool, too, to talk to someone from another part of the country. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then, that's... oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, just that's an exciting guest. 
I'll be, I'll be very interested to hear what she has to say about auditory processing. <clears throat> I don't know that much about it, really. Mm-hmm. So, I know some, but not that much. That's her thing. That I know, uh, and she, yeah. So it'll it'll be a lot of fun to talk with her about that. Then I met a really cool lady, uh, Catherine, and I could not recall her last name, but she's written this super book, a series of books called. My Baby Compass, and it's all about typical development in children birth to seven because she says that even speech pathologists that that don't have a great background for normal often think that children on their caseloads, I'm sorry, uh, G-R-U-H-N is her last name, Grown, Grown, how would you say that, Kate? What is it? G R U H N. Catherine. I'm going to call her Catherine. Grun. Okay. And she, her book series, I just loved. She, I bought it, but I haven't gotten to read it yet. And but she talks about how we get skewed perceptions when you only see delayed kids. And I said, oh my goodness, I sing this song all the time about speech pathologists having a really good idea of what's normal so that you can use that as your gauge or your guide when treating children rather than just relying on the milestones that we use. And, boy, we talk about that all the time, too, how we get a really um, misguided perception with, with comparing kids on our caseload to each other or, you know, the kids, you know, you're comparing one delayed kid to another delayed kid without really thinking about the children that you're seeing as compared to typical development. And, again, not even that milestone age or those levels or skills that we look at, but to true, normal, typical development. So she's written this great series of books about that. And it's birth to seven, and I, I like having access to that information too, with even older kids, you know, because once they're in kindergarten, ooh, we think they're big, don't we? Mm, so it, it'll be good. <laughs> it'll be good to have that resource at my fingertips. So when a mom says to me, you know, at Walmart or church or wherever else, my five-year-old is doing this. Is this normal? You know, I'll have a good reference rather than my memory of, of what five really looks and sounds like since I would – maybe not have uh, access to that information otherwise. So she's going to be a great guest, and I liked her personality a lot. You'll like her, Kate. She's your kind of person. Well, I'm looking for you. We have fun guests coming up. I'm going to be learning a lot. It's very exciting. I'm excited about it. So that's what's on tap for December, and I am also, for January, looking ahead to think about sharing some of the great information uh, that I've learned at ASHA. I attended a couple of different sessions on the new diagnostic criteria for autism spectrum disorder and how that will look moving forward, comparing the DSM-4 to the DSM-5 and just the differences. And there's been a lot of hoopla about that in the media, like the New York Times did a big article about Asperger's diagnosis going away, and that's really, it's true, but it's not. And so we'll be talking about a lot of those 
changes and how that might affect us in early intervention. And I like the diagnostic criteria. There's also a new diagnosis that they've added called social communication disorder, and I think it's really important for speech pathologists to know what that means and how that might look with children. I don't know how it will present itself to those of us who mostly do early intervention, but we can certainly talk about that, and I just want people to be prepared. So that'll be a great show and a great topic. And then I also got some great information about pre-intentional communication with how babies really develop that intentionality piece and all the steps that lead up to really understanding cause and effect and object permanence and problem solving and all those little factors and how closely a child's cognitive development is related to their social development. And I've said that for a long time, and I felt like I quantified it for a long time, but boy, do I have some new stuff to add to that. So I'm really excited about being able to share that information too. So it was a great few days of learning and going to conferences. It was a lot of fun not being the speaker, just kind of sitting there and taking it all in. And um, there was some... There were some cute moments, too. You know, Johnny went with me, and he, uh, every time the speaker started to have PowerPoint problems, he would want to go help the speaker, and I would say, sit down. You cannot go up there. There are 250 people in this room. I'm going to do that. And another lady was coughing, and he'd say, I should just go get her a drink. Nobody's getting her a drink. Why isn't anybody taking her a drink? I'm like, you are not in charge. You are not going to take care of her like you do when we're, on the road, and I'm the person up there. That that will look weird. Sit down. <laughs> I can so see him doing it. I can so see him. <laughs> he has that helper personality anyway, you know, stopping on the side of the road for people and helping people in the grocery store and wherever we are. So it was very funny for me to have to hold him back. Ashes, <laughs> pretty funny. The other thing he did, Kate, is darn if he's learned some stuff over this past 20 years because the, one of the speakers showed video with a child who got an autism diagnosis and then a child who just had language delays. And so she was saying, tell me the differences in this video. And he starts screaming out the right answers, you know, like, uh-huh. no joint attention, no gestures. Hyper-focus on the object instead of the mom. <laughs> you know, he's got this big, booming male southern accent. So anybody <laughs> sitting around us, you, know, you can see the women sitting beside us, and I'm sure they were thinking, who is that? It was so cute, though. I am such a good teacher. It has rubbed <laughs> off even on him. <laughs> well, he has been... Watching it for a long time, filming it for a long time. Yeah, that's hilarious. It was pretty funny, pretty funny. There were some other things that happened, too, that I'm probably not going to share because some people don't seem to have a sense of humor. If I'm talking about a speaker, they think I might be a little unprofessional, so I'll just have to share those little stories with you later. But, okay. Um, we had a really, really, really good time and learned a lot of stuff, so it was a ton of fun. And next time's in Chicago, so I think we're 
definitely going to plan to go next year. And maybe I can talk you into going with us. And then people can say to you, are you Kate Hensler? I really don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, but no way. (laughs) They probably wouldn't say Hensler. They would just say, are you Kate? I think that's what they would say, so. That's funny because people people would ask Johnny even when I wasn't with him, teach me to talk. Are you to teach me to talk? Are you Johnny? So I thought that was pretty cute. Pretty cute. So anyway, we'll see. I have a whole year to talk you into that. Okay. Well, I do like Ooh. Chicago. I have to say that's kind of not my hometown, but you know, yeah. I grew up going there. So yeah, and have good so. shopping. So there's some points in its favor. <laughs> there's some hope. I'll have to bribe you. Yeah, I don't want to be identified, though. I'll I'll think about it. (laughs) Okay. All right. Moving right along, I do want to say that today I have gotten final, final, final counts for Chicago, and I have a few little slots for day two only. I didn't realize how many people had just registered for day one and not day two. So if you are listening and you are sad that you missed the deadline and did not get to sign up, you can still come for day two. And another interesting thing that's happened is several parents are coming to that that day as well. So if you live close to Chicago and want to come join me next Friday for Building Verbal Imitation in Conference uh, for Toddlers, I would – am I saying that right? Building Verbal Imitation in Toddlers Conference. Okay. There, I said it right then. Yes. Come next Friday. I would love to have you, and you need to email me so that I can uh, send you the registration information. And my email address is laura at teachmetotalk.com. So I wanted to say that, too. And I think that might be all of our announcements. Oh, I did want to mention this week I'm getting started on that new and improved therapy tip of the week uh, video and then the downloadable therapy guide that will go with it. So that's a new feature. I hinted about it a little bit last week. It will eventually be on a whole new website that may not be ready until later on in December, but we're going to roll out the video, the videos and the first therapy guides. There should be about four of those, and they are all related to Christmas activities and themes. And I know Therapists usually love that kind of information because you get sick and tired of doing the same old thing and you'd like a new way to target your goals, even if you're using your same strategies. Just having some cooler ideas and some different things to do that your kids that are on your caseload haven't seen week after week after week. So I've got some really great ideas and I'm so excited about rolling that out. And we'll talk more about that next Monday since those things should be live and available by then, but I wanted to mention it today. So stay tuned for that and don't miss any episodes of the podcast. And then I think the most current information about that will be up on um, teachmetotalk.com's website by Friday or so. And then you can always check out teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page since I do tend to get um, things up put on there pretty quickly. So I wanted to mention that as well. And that's been exciting for me. And I can't wait to for everyone to see those and for us to be able to talk about it. But we'll talk more about that next week. All right. Any other little announcements, Kate, before we get going? Um, I did have one, Laura. Go ahead. But I don't know that it's, it's – well, it's maybe an okay way to reintroduce our – ongoing topic 
One thing I thought after the show was we really we've talked so much about specific strategies for targeting you know various levels of receptive language stuff but we you really haven't said when you talk to parents about working on these things with their kids what's the regimen what do you suggest as far as how much they work on it and I mean time wise during the day yeah you know that always I think depends on families and on specific children and let me just tell you what the research says about this kind of stuff if a child has really significant developmental issues, meaning that he or she is way behind, and this specifically refers to children who might also have some engagement issues, meaning that their social skills aren't quite what we would want them to be. They right. may or may not have a diagnosis of autism yet. They may just be, uh, again, kind of red flagged for that, or, again, a child may have... They may do be this new, what was that diagnosis you were talking about? Social communication disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or, again, have enough of a developmental delay that you know, again, delay might be a little misnomer. They are a little, um, little misuse of the word, meaning that they're going to have this. They, they're not going to catch up without intervention. They're going to have this issue a lot. If your child falls in that category, the research says that a child really needs about 20 hours a week of intervention to make a difference with a significant delay or a significant problem, particularly if that child is leaning toward an autism spectrum diagnosis. So there's no family in the world that can afford, well, I guess there are some, but not in the real world, can afford 20 hours a week of therapy. So really the bulk of that would fall on a parent. And so really when you boil that down, that's about three hours a day. Now, is that totally realistic for most families? No, because you have a life to live. You have other children to parent. You have a job, maybe, or just your work at home and running your home and keeping your family afloat. So I always give parents that recommendation knowing that that's our goal and that that's kind of the the best case scenario. And I think that telling parents that really lets them know that a couple of minutes here and there probably is not going to get it. And a lot of times therapists will say to a parent, if you just work this into your daily routines, it will all be fine. And I mm -hmm. don't really believe that. I mean, do you believe that about a lot of the children we see? I mean, I don't. <sighs> no, not really. I really um, don't. I mean, I and think it, doesn't, it helps. I think if you're, not, if you're not, if it's not specifically targeted in a, like, play therapy session, a lot of times it just doesn't get done. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I tell parents, and I say this in my conferences, and you can interview parents that have seen me in the last, I would say, for sure, the last five to ten years. I've really talked about they have got to have this one-on-one -on -one time with you. They've got You've got to be on the floor with them. It can't just be something you're screaming at them while, you know, you're washing the dishes and they're, sitting in their chair, it's not really enough just to kind of say, cop, get your cop, show me your cop, where's your cop, 
that's not enough. <laughs> Uh-huh. And again, some therapists really fall into that. Well, well, I should just tell them how to say it in their daily routines, or they're not going to do it. And I just feel like if we don't give them something else to shoot for, they're not going to do it either. And so, while the twenty hours a week may scare a lot of parents to death, and they think I'm not going to ever be able to do that, I still think it makes them prioritize working on this stuff in a little more structured, a little more formal way than what they would have done had they not had that information. And I like to tell parents, if you can do kind of a morning, a little 20-minute kind of play routine in the morning, 20 to 30 minutes, and in the afternoon and in the evening, the families that have been able to implement that, that I've worked directly with, those children have really, I think, done so much better than they would have done had their moms not been so formal about it. Now, is that totally realistic for every single family, every, you know, 365 days a year? No. But if they try to think about at least a couple or three times a day, they'll probably get in at least one good time. And without really planning for it to be two or three times a day, you don't even really hit that one good time. I mean, that real life happens. And things come up and things interfere, but if you don't plan for it, you don't even get one time a day where you're really kind of working on this. And, again, it doesn't have to be for three hours straight. You know, 20, 30 minutes, I think it's great. What happens a lot that parents tell me on the website is they start doing this with their kids and their kids demand even more of their attention. Mm -hmm. And so then they want to play with mommy more. They want mommy's attention more. They want you interacting with them more. You know, and then they're kind of complaining, my laundry never gets done, the dishes are piled up, you know, the floor hasn't been vacuumed in two weeks, and I'd say, you know, in a year or two, your kid's going to be bigger, and your house can be clean at that point. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's really, really important that parents prioritize it now. And, again, I know a lot of therapists kind of give me heat about saying that in conferences, like, why do you say that it has to be play? We, I'm really only teaching daily routines. And I'm not saying it doesn't need to be in daily routines. It just needs to be and play. You need to target it. Do, do what you do in, at bath time and at meal time and, you know, getting dressed. Yeah, do it. Do all this language stuff then but, and in your structured play time too where you've, where you've said, oh, gosh, I've got to play with him this morning. I'm not going to check email. I'm not going to answer my phone. We have an hour until I have to go pick up Sissy from preschool. This is going to be his time. I'm going to work on some of this stuff. What What do you tell your parents on your caseload, Kate? What do you think seems to work best? Uh, I don't always say, really, to be honest. When I'm able to say, I use your three times a day. Two would be good. <laughs> yeah. But I also, you know think that the sessions go better when they do the reserve some special toys kind of things. Yeah. You know, just as we do during session. And, you know, some kids have tons of toys and they're out. They just put them up for a little bit. They become pretty cool again. Right. And to use those toys for their play therapy. And I do think that kids, like you said, once they get a taste of it, they really want a lot more of it. And it's mm-hmm. you know, becomes uh, more rewarding for both the 
parent and the child, and it's hard to say no when they want to play and they're being cute about it, you know. <laughs> exactly. How can you refuse that? And it does become so rewarding for a mom at that point because she thinks, mm-hmm. oh, my goodness, I can do this. This isn't mm-hmm. as hard as I thought. And when you, again, you have to though almost plan for it or it doesn't happen. Right. And I know that's kind of not in vogue right now to say that you need you know, that, that special kind of sit-down time together. I know a lot of approaches out there are really saying it can all be done in the context of snack time and bath time and whatever. And I I, I just think it should be and. I think you need mm-hmm. the, that personal one-on-one and. Mm-hmm. Your strategies embedded during the day, and some therapists, you know, have a hard time really talking to parents about that. I got brave a long time ago and just started talking about it. And my opinion is, I can't, I can't make a parent do that, and that would never be anything that I would try to do or want to do. But if they don't know, if they don't have the information, then they can't even make a good decision. I mean, it would be terrible to me if I never talk to a parent about, look, you're going to have to really play with him one-on-one. This is going to take a lot of effort on your part, and we have to change what we're doing because if if we don't make some changes now, you know, he's obviously not gotten it doing what you already do. So we have to tweak some things. We have to make some changes. I would hate that I didn't say that to a parent, and then a year or two later, them realize that, and then they lost all that time because I was embarrassed or afraid or felt like, oh, I can't ask her to do that. She has three other kids. So what? It's not up to me to decide how she gets it done or when she gets it done. And I'm not going to berate her or judge her or be condescending about it if she can't. I just want, or he, you know, I want moms and dads to have that information so that they can make a choice. And a lot of parents will really rise to the occasion and will say, you know, every morning I've been making sure that between, you know, 9.30 and 11, we do his therapy stuff and we do his, his playtime and I'm with him and that's our time together. And and those are the parents that I think that are seeing the best rewards. So that was a great question, and I'm glad that you brought that up because we haven't talked about that in a long, long time on the show. And it, I know, know, and it's relevant for all this stuff because, you know, yeah. when we say practice it, practice it, practice it, practice it, that's what we mean. Right. <laughs> exactly. In order for some kids, not all kids, but certainly some of the kids, they really yeah. need that much repetition for, you know, for it to really take hold. So, yeah. anyway, yeah, I time, thought we should mention that. So, yeah. and now on that note... This- I'm going to say one more thing before we move on. Okay. Most of the time, if a parent doesn't really plan, though, I've found that, and some parents will say this to me, I bet they've said this to you. I've tried to do some of that stuff, but I really wasn't able to do it. And then I'll say, well, what happened? And they'll say, well, he wasn't really responding to me like I've seen him respond to you during sessions. And then you start to ask him questions, and it's just that they didn't have a clear, good enough plan about what they wanted to do. They either just kind of followed their kid around from toy to toy and tried to engage them. They didn't do what you suggested with saving a few toys out, you know, putting them away so that they can bring it out. I've had some moms even do, like, the whole therapy bag thing where they're putting it all together and then bringing it back out. And, again, I know that's not in vogue right now. I know that some 
approaches are really saying, no, we want everything embedded in a daily routine. If you can make that work and if you can just get your kid to do that, okay, great, more power to you. Keep on doing it if it's working for you. But if your child is not responding and if you are not having pro- – he's not making progress and if you are not having good successes and you don't feel like you're doing what you're doing is right or good enough, these are the things that you should try and making it a little more structured, a little more formal, a little more planned will make a big, big, big difference. And, you know, we're talking to moms now, but, boy, that really applies to therapists too, don't you think? Absolutely. Um, yep. And and using what the kids like. And that's just not, you know, things that toys and cool things that, you know, move and it just doesn't come up in daily routines. Let's face it. I mean, you know. Right. Yeah. So if we did last week, we could have, like, the whole um, <coughs> identify our function. You could really work that so nicely into daily routines, but you have to plan to do that. A mom has to think, okay, when we're take a bath tonight, let's see, what am I going to talk about? Okay, I'm going to talk about the towel. I'm going to talk about the bath cloth. I'm going to talk about the soap. I'm going to talk about the water. You know, you have to almost think like that. Otherwise, you just kind of go on autopilot right. and you end up not introducing anything new or not saying mm-hmm. anything new or maybe not talking at all, maybe just right. trying to get the kid washed and be done so they can go to bed. Um, so I think planning ahead and thinking about it ahead of time is what, that's the only way I think you can incorporate things into daily routines. And, if, and you know, some therapists think that all of this is easier in daily routines. I really think it's all easier to target and play. I mean, what do you oh, think? I do well, I think yeah. that kids are um, naturally much more drawn to the play than they are the the reality of, you know, washing their own little bellies or, you know, they, yeah, let's do it with the baby. Let's <laughs> yeah. That's a lot more fun, really, especially if you let yeah. them use powder in the lotion as they do it. Right. Then, uh, you know, yeah, that's the reality of, you know, parenthood. Child's dirty. They hate, they've eaten dinner. Everybody's exhausted. You give them a bath and you hope they go to bed. You read them a book and go to bed, you know, and it's, you're not really yeah. going to do all of that stuff. It's hard right. enough to get them clean and out of the bathtub and ready for bed. So Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I still, again, I know it might be a little out of session right now, but I still think it's planned. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of good that can go on in planning a playtime and in planning a therapy session so that you're able to target these things. Okay, let's talk about, we have three things that we're talking about today, and now it's 3.30. So we have 10 minutes each, so I'm going to watch the clock when we're talking, Kate, and when we're done, we're done. Okay. So the first thing, and I'm saying that mostly for myself because, boy, I could probably talk about each of these things for, oh, three or four hours without really mm-hmm. even taking a breath. I'm going to do it in about 10 minutes for each of these and Yeah, because so we first, have some, uh, some big-time guests coming up, and we need to clear the docket. We have to finish. So, yeah, we're, let's go. we're done. <laughs> okay, so negation. Negation means... That a child understands not plus another word or no plus another word, meaning the absence of something. So not jumping would mean that there's no jumping going on. The child will understand that 
and even understand that a child is, that uh, you know if you're you're talking about the dog is not jumping, he could be sleeping, he could be sitting, he could be eating, but he's not jumping. Negation can also be applied when you're thinking about with uh, not verse with a noun. So that would be this is not daddy, this is mommy. And I always think about children who call uh, every man in Walmart daddy, you know, and their moms are saying that's not daddy. Shh. <laughs> so, uh, you know, negation certainly plays a part with nouns. You know, it just means that the that it's non-existent. That relationship is not there, no matter what part of speech you put it with. You could pair it with not plus a preposition. You know, it's not in, it's out, it's out, not in, not in. And so, again, these are the kinds of things that we say and that we try to teach as we're teaching other concepts and other working on other goals, working on negation has probably come up or you've probably targeted it but not in um, as direct a way as you might have to with some children. And we, we always think, I think about teaching negation when we're really teaching those descriptive words or opposites like it is. It's not big, it's little. You know, it's little, it's small, it's tiny, it's not big. So, again, when you're putting not with another word or another part of speech. Contractions also fall into this category, you know, with you know, do not walk on the grass or do not jump on the couch, you know, the don't or can't. So, again, that's just part of um same kind of concept, even if it's a different grammatical construction there. And so how do we teach negation? You have to make sure first before you start on this with a child, well, let me just say that in, we would want a child to begin to understand and use some of these kinds of words by two and a half. And, you know, anytime we say use it by an age range, that always means that a child understands it before he or she Get to be that age because receptive language or comprehension should come uh, before expression uh, when in typical development anyway, even with most of our children with delays. So we have to make sure that they're understanding it first. And so if you have a child that really is not refusing anything, pushing it away, saying no, making a definitive negative statement, then he or she is nowhere near ready to work on understanding negation because they don't even have that foundational concept of the refusal or the non-existence. And again, I know that no one listening to this show would need to be told that, but I just want to be sure that we're covering that and that we're making sure that that everybody understands that that's the foundation where this skill begins to develop. And so when we're teaching negation, again, we want to make sure that the child is developmentally ready to learn it. And we also want to make sure that whatever concept we're using, the, the negative part with, that they understand the word that we're pairing it with. So if you were, if you were trying to teach colors, to a child and you were saying, not yellow, not yellow, not yellow, it's orange. You you can't really use not yellow <laughs> until you know that a child has understood the first concept that you're trying to teach. Does that make sense? I don't think I'm explaining it very well, but 
you have to be sure that before you're trying to teach the opposite or the not part that they understand your target and that they, they have a full grasp of what that word would mean before you would go teaching the negative portion. Why don't you reword that, Kate, because you might, you might say it in a way that might be easier for someone to understand. Um, well, how would I reword it? I would say um, they have to understand the general concept before you can expect them to understand the opposite. So if they don't know what big is, they don't know what not big is. If they don't know what sad is, they don't know what not sad. If they don't know whatever, you know, dirty, not dirty. If you don't know what dirty is, you certainly don't know what not dirty is. So, right. And it would be easy to assume that perhaps they knew that. And that's uh, what I see happen a lot, mm-hmm. is that they're, that we're working above where we should be working. And so instead of teaching, we're, we're thinking that we're teaching negation or we think we're, we think we're kind of working on that when really we should, as in this what we've talked about over the last several weeks with this series, we've got to back up several weeks and teach the descriptive words first and as their own entity before you would start moving on and teaching the negative part or the not part. So, again, we want to make sure that 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 concept and that basic receptive language is there before we would move on to a super picky goal like negation. And I'll just say, and I said this last week when we were talking about object functions. These are some things that if you are um, mostly specialized in birth to three, you may hardly get to this point with children on your caseload. You may never really teach these things because either a child is still struggling with the kinds of things that we've talked about in the previous weeks and you're still working on those things and you just don't get here, or He's caught up enough that you've already let him go. And so these topics, these these goals that we're talking about, again, if you're primarily a birth to three practice, you may never you may never get to that point. And you may never have to really have tons of strategies to treat these because it's going to be so infrequent that you would target these as a real goal, not just kind of a sideline, you know, or blended in with other things, but as your one of your main focuses for therapy, you might not ever get there. Kate, is this something you really think about with the kids that you see as a developmental interventionist? Uh, no. I would say generally not. Um, I have specifically targeted them with kids who were older than three but still language delayed. Right. Um, I do have one little girl in my caseload right now, and, and I'm surprised I haven't had more kids. I guess I've had some kids, but it's a cute one. Her form of negation is she'll shake her. Really, her this is the kid I've referred to in the past as well about this. She uses I want phrases but can't really sequence two words into phrases, but that's her uh-huh. I want blank. And then her negation is she shakes her head when she says, yep. I want. <laughs> I've had a lot of kids do that. And that tells me, okay, they've got the concept. Oh, That's yeah. Great. She gets, no, get the she word. can't put the word in there <laughs> or yeah. not. Yeah. She does and say no. Those, yeah, and with those kids, you might not target not with that. You might say, you know, no Elmo or no cookie or 
you know, no play or whatever as a way to really give her words to start to verbally express negation long before she moves on to using not with something. So it might make more sense for a lot of kids to start, you know, with no plus another word. And I've done that a lot. And and the truth is a lot of kids will just add it non-verbally like you've said and talked about that little girl or they'll start just doing no with something else. And that tells you negation is emerging, and we need to add that and get this word in their repertoire with not or another, you know, don't or can't or whatever word would fit there grammatically. You know, we're always looking for that next little step up um, and and teach it then and help the child learn to say it then. We talked about this when we were teaching, when we were talking about descriptive words with opposites too, is that you might have to say, um, you know, if you were playing with dogs and cats, you might do dog, 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 not dog, you know, when you're pointing to the cat to mm-hmm. really, or playing with the cat to really help the child begin to understand that and cement that in his or her little brain. And you can do that while you're playing. You can do that with pictures. I almost always teach negation with verbs, even though kids understand it probably better with nouns at the beginning. But I love to teach it with verbs because I think it's really funny to do that. You know, I'm so sleepy, I'm so sleepy, and then, you know, like snore and yawn and then, you know, make a crazy antic where you're jumping up and go, oh, not sleepy, you know, or doing it with the baby doll or um, anything like that. So, and I think I said I, I did it with verbs when really I gave a description then with an adjective, but that's okay, you get my point where you're going to make it really, really uh, humorous and dramatically different. Um, Or, you know, you do jumping, 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 and then you fall down and say, not jumping. And it's it's kind of funny, and kids will think that's kind of cool to work on. There are some good examples of negation in Teach Me to Listen and Obey, too. So if you need some more help with that, anyone listening, you get that DVD and take a look at that section because there are some nice ways, some nice video examples of how to work on that with a real kid in a real therapy session with a real toy. All right, that's our 10 minutes. We're moving on to the next topic. Let me say this. Although I don't specifically target this, I use an exaggerated not very early on with kids. It's one of those things that, although you might not really expect them to get it yet, you work it in hoping it sinks in at some point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. that's why a lot of times we don't really have to work on this formally because you've already done it, you've already covered your base, and guess what? The child learned it without Mm -hmm. a ton of special attention. But if you have a child that's two and a half to three and is developmentally keeping pace and coming along, this might be something you have to teach and talk about and think about so that um, you can work it into your therapy sessions and make mom and dad aware of it. So um, I'm glad we talked about it. All right, let's talk about the next one, which is identifying parts of an object. Now, usually, again, this is something that you talk about and that you work in. You may not have thought about teaching it per se, and we all, even as parents, will work on parts of an object without really thinking about it. You know, with our faces, when we're teaching body parts, we don't really teach head or face. We teach eyes, nose, mouth, you know, and you can hardly play with a car or a train with a toddler without saying, where are the wheels? Find the wheels. You know, again, this is just something that a lot of us instinctively talk about 
And when we see that a child's attention is directed toward the part, we are labeling it and thinking about it and talking about it. But for some of our kids, uh, they might need some more direct teaching. And so you'll just have to think about all of the different, instead of just saying house, all of the different words that you can teach with house. You can teach door, you can teach window, you can teach, um, you know, if there's a flower right beside it on a picture that looks Chimney. like it's kind of part of the house. Chimney, there you go. Roof, roof. whatever you want. Yeah. Top, yes. Roof, we is it roof or roof? I say roof, but I'm from Mississippi, so you probably say roof because you're I actually, not from Mississippi. I think I'd say roof on the roof. I say roof. Mm-hmm. Okay. And sometimes I just say top. If I'm working <laughs> with a family that I know that they're from the northeast, I'll say, oh, I'm not going to say roof. They're going to get all whacked out about my vowels here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, again, just kind of work into what you could Think about or what other words a kid might need to know. If you're talking about the tree, you might want to say there's a leaf. Now, sometimes you can carry it too far. I've heard parents that they will drive their kids crazy because they're pointing out every single thing about, you know, on the flower, there are the petals. You know, (laughs) they start, you know, it sounds more like a biology class. You know, they start trying to talk about things that there's no way that even a typically developing two-year-old would sit through your boring explanation of this. So just still keep it pretty simple, and I still don't really have more than two or three new words or new parts for something uh, with any kid who's struggling to learn that because I think it's overkill and they're not going to learn it anyway. It's gonna You're going to bombard them with too much information. So two or three little parts with whatever object that you're talking about, and then move on after that. Lots of kids like doing this, and I think in a testing situation, this comes most often when we're having children identify details in a picture, and I think that's exactly how it's asked on your test, isn't it, Kate? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so... And a lot of kids struggle with this. Um, you know, kids with receptive language issues, it can be difficult. They will they get the bear, but when you say, where's the bear's belly or the button on daddy's coat or right. where's mommy's shoe, mm, yeah, you know. Not there. Yeah. Yeah. One step too high. So, um, and, and I know you, in your literature, Laura, you say start, for those kids, start with the actual object. You know, right. have them show you baby's okay, belly, good. baby's toes, baby's <laughs> hair, baby's eyes. Have them show you on the house, where's the door, where's the window, you know, the play Fisher-Price house or whatever yeah. variety you yeah. might have. Mm-hmm. Because then it's right there. You just don't talk about the doors and the windows and the chimneys and the sidewalk, you know, if you're really, well, you might if you're on the sidewalk. But, you know, in the house, you just don't necessarily right. go around. And it would be bizarre if you did. But right. when you're playing with it, it's right there. You have that perfect That's little model. <laughs> yeah. And and so it. It, yeah. And if you have a child that you're trying to get him to do that with pictures in a book and he's not getting it, you better be backing that up to the real object. And you might even, you know, if you're asking a child those kinds of things with a farm book and you're talking about the barn and he doesn't get it, then I would automatically dig out the barn, the Fisher-Price barn. And point those out, you know, and you might even do the whole 
and when I'm using books with kids who don't like books or who don't get it with books, I'll hold the book in my lap and say, look, barn, barn, door, door, window, window. And then you can almost see with some kids like that aha moment, like, oh, my gosh, I get it. <laughs> and a lot of kids like that whole when you're kind of making it fast-paced and it's like a game, you mm-hmm. know, when you're saying, show me the whatever, now, show me this, show me that, you know, and they kind of get into it and think it's pretty funny. And, again, if you are really animated when you're doing it and really fun, they're going to want to uh, play with you and participate in that. But let me back up. If your kid doesn't know barn, stick with barn (laughs) or stick with house. Don't try to work on these concepts you might point them out you know you'll say cows going in the door there's the door on the barn here's the door let's knock on the door but you would not sit with a kid who's not understanding and who's not saying barn you wouldn't really sit and work on these kinds of goals yet because he or she's not developmentally ready so sometimes I do think that a parent might hear a show and their child not quite be at that level and then they get a little bit discouraged when they try to implement a strategy that we suggested like this one without really thinking that their child might not be ready. So I wanted to point that out. Um, you know, your your kid has to know, and I know we've said it, but, again, I want to reiterate it. If your child doesn't know barn, don't worry about the parts on it yet. If he doesn't know car, don't worry about the wheels yet. You know, teach, teach the big object first. And I do think <laughs> sometimes that that, I mean, that we all make that mistake, but, it, you know, it's overwhelming to a kid. It's like, no, they don't even get the mm-hmm. big part. You got to build on that. You got to get the foundation right. in there. Right. So you can, right. like you said, kind of talk about the other things. Maybe some of that will be interesting to them, but mostly stick on the big thing. Exactly. For kids who aren't there yet. And again, how do you measure they're not there? They don't understand when you say get the barn. Or when you say what's that, they don't answer barn. So those would be your two prerequisites. They don't understand it well get it or say it, you do need to be working on this goal. All right. Ding, 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 our 10 minutes on that goal are up. Boy, this might be we do all our topics from now on. This is moving well. <laughs> okay, next one. <laughs> matching. Now, Kate, you could probably talk about why we work on matching and sorting. And, again, I think about these as prerequisites for categories, for a child knowing categories. But if we really broke it down, learning to match and sort is the foundational skill for almost every academic thing a child will learn from this point forward, don't you think? Well, I'm not sure I would have said it so profoundly or even that I would have (laughs) said it, but, yes, I would say it is a hugely important concept be able to match and discriminate. Yeah, because think about math. I mean, think about Mm -hmm. learning numbers and learning even the the whole foundation for counting and for and when you get to the point where you're ready to read, you know, you've got to know that this little A matches this little A, and there, you know, that's the foundation before you go on to learn how to write that or what that sounds like. So sorting and matching and categorizing these really basic cognitive skills 
again, I think it's just a foundation for everything. Thankfully, we don't always have to teach these, or again, it's embedded in something else that you've already started to do. And I love it when I just realize sometimes with a new kid, oh, my goodness, he or she can match or match yeah. by color or something mm-hmm. like that when I haven't really even thought about it yet for a kid and they already can do it. Or when they come in the door to me, the very first time they see me and they're already doing this, to me it always feels like a great big, you know, <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> because it's really important. And kids who can't visually match, I think are at a huge disadvantage for uh, learning. And there, and we know that if you have a child, when is matching on your test? I mean, there are lots of different levels of matching. You can match by object to object. You can match by color. You can match by, uh, you know, the, your endless possibilities. But what it when do you uh, kind of think about early. that? On the it's test? really early yeah. on mine, I think. It's like 15 to 19 months. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we see a child is not really matching with the puzzle, and again, I know that you're thinking of puzzle, and if we happen to have an OT listening to the show, they may say, well, don't always use a puzzle because it might be that their motor planning is so bad that they can't really get the right piece in the right hole. And part of me, Kate, would be like you and say, that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is they didn't understand the concept that uh-huh. the the picture on the puzzle piece is not the same as the picture on the, the inset of the puzzle. And, again, that whole... Um, Matching, matching is prevalent with our toys. Think about with shape sorters. And again, they those toy companies make those for babies. They they think that babies should really be knowing that the square block goes in the square on the shape sorter, and the triangular block goes in the triangle shape piece. And again, it, it's an early, early, early skill. Probably earlier than 15 to 19 months, if we think about it in in that kind of term. Is yours on there? Is 15 to 19 months with matching a puzzle, matching a picture to a picture? No, it's, um, I'm trying to think how it is worded. I always do it with poo characters. That's what I use. So objects, matching objects. And so this is this will tell you if you are a therapist or a parent and you have a child who's still not matching like with puzzle pieces, how can you work on it besides saying, Look, look, here it is, see? <laughs> Back it up and use real objects first. And sometimes a lot the toys that you know, you'll really have to kind of look to make sure you even have some pairs to use this with when you're teaching it. As a therapist, you might have to really dig around through some of your toys to find uh, like objects that you can match. Uh, and if you are a therapist and, and you you're, have, Unless you're like us, in which case you have multiples of everything. So. Well, there you go. But that took a career to build. You know, we didn't have yeah. that. I know, but, day. you know, especially like characters, I tend to, you know, when kids like them, they really like them. So it's like, well, I right. want more than one Mickey Mouse. Does. Yeah, I want yeah. <laughs> more than one Diego, more than one Dora. Yeah. And when you start out, you have to have, if you have a kid who's really struggling with this, you have to have them almost look the same. 
I mean, you couldn't really have, I mean, I guess you could with Dora, but I'm thinking about with cars. If you were, you for some kids, you know, matching a car might be simple, but if you don't have it really look almost the same, it might be too hard to teach. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So they have to be really similar. And so, and what I was going to say, too, if you're a therapist and you don't already have some activities where you're matching pictures with objects, and again, that you're doing in a play situation, your kid's not going to be able, the children you see aren't going to be able to do that during an assessment situation. So you want to make sure that you have some activities that you're using to teach that as, you know, again, when we're teaching them and not testing them. Kate, you have that great puzzle that yeah, that's, that's in two pieces now. I haven't been using it because it's so dilapidated from me tapping the pictures 10,000 times. The pictures are almost, you know, yeah. <laughs> can't see them. And a, a child Explain saw what that it, it is, was though. cracked and ripped the top off. Oh, it was a, a nice big um, large knob puzzle that had very everyday common objects like a hat, a duck, a boat, um, a shoe, you know, every day come in a a flower, and I had Mm -hmm. each of those objects. Right. And, of course, they were, you know, among babies' first words as far as easy, a ball, you know. Right. Doesn't get any better than those things, so. There you go. (laughs) It was perfect. And then I had each object. um, Right. And I'd have them, of course. And, and that was a good early matching thing. I and I and I still have other puzzles where I have all the animals, the various animals, all the vehicles, yeah. various vehicles. You know what? Most little boys are they going to love the uh, puzzle that has the actual cop car and bus and boat and helicopter? Right. Yes. You know <laughs> exactly. And so if you're a therapist listening and you've never done that with your puzzles, you need, I want to say, pull over to the side of the road and do it. No, just kidding. You can wait till you get home. But you really have to do that. You have to set up therapy things, situations like that, so that you have your tools there and you have it ready. I have that with a book with matching objects that I use all the time, and I show that footage in conferences, and I cannot tell you how many people will say, I've never done that. That's a great idea. And it's a, it is a super idea for kids who don't like books and who who hate that whole picture thing. And I know we've talked about it a lot, but if you missed that in the past. Ah, somehow I've a, missed it. What book? What? <laughs> no way. It must have been since you've come to the conference. The last time you've even, that was like last January. You've missed a whole series of stuff there. But you know, like those like those baby, those photograph books, like those, um, oh, what are they called? You know, just pictures, that, just books that have real pictures, not cartoonish. And so I've taken, like, the picture of the baby and put a doll in there. And there's a picture of a banana with, and then I have a toy banana. Mm-hmm. And a picture of a car, and I have... For every page of that book, there might be four or five pictures, but I have at least one object for every page of those books. There's a therapy tip of the week about that. You've seen that. You've just not. You've just glossed over it in your processing. I think the therapy tip of the week one was from June. Okay. But I I'll think go, it's a great. I'll go back and watch it. Well, I, then I need to make, get the book and do it because, yeah, my puzzle has pretty much, that was perfect. And I do, like yeah. I said, I have the vehicles and I have various animal puzzles with so you're animals. you're already doing it. 
that's yeah. how you spaced it because you already did it with something else. But yeah. I think it's really critical to have it with three or four different things. Like I have it with the book, you know, with a couple of different books. And we, and that's really mostly when I've used it, when a kid hasn't liked books and his mom is saying, what can I do? And I show her that videotape or say, go back and watch Therapy Tip of the Week from, you know, June, whatever. And then... um you know, show her with her child how to do it. And so it works really, really well with that. But we need to have several activities that we're pulling that out because you can't even use the same thing. You know, the third or fourth time you try to bring that out with a kid, especially if they hate books, they're going to reject that activity. So you have to kind of trick them into doing the same, working on the same skill with a different set of materials. So I, the puzzle idea is a, is a great one. I have a little puzzle that I've done that with, but it's not as good as uh, the puzzle that you were using. Mm-hmm. It's a puzzle that mostly looks like toys. And so my baby doesn't really even sort of look like the baby doll on my uh-huh. puzzle. You know what I mean? Yeah, this was and more so, of a photograph type. Yeah. But big. Yeah. Big and chunky, but more of a, right. an actual photograph. Yeah, and that's yeah. why I think the the book works so well with that. But that's, yeah, that's that something would. I'm writing myself a note to. I'm going to make my make some new little therapy bags to target that with. Because again, after you've shown a child three or four times in a row, you really need to switch your materials to be sure that he's mastering the skill and not just that one little set of materials. Because that happens a lot. They'll they'll not generalize. And we don't even know it because we've done the same thing over and over and over again. All right, we had a couple of more things to talk about with this matching, but we are not going to do it because we're at the end of this hour. Well, let um, me say this, just about matching colors. Yes. Um, I, I'm not a huge teach the name of a color person, but I like to work um, matching colors into actual playthings, and the best, I think, are simple toys that have colored keys. What little mm-hmm. boy doesn't love keys? And teaching right. them to match the the best one, I think, Laura, is that little uh, vehicle Animal garage hospital. that we both have. Yeah, just well, no, that's good. But for that, earlier, you're right. You're the right. The little vehicle one just has three garage doors and three yeah. same colored keys, and they have to match them. And um, I've that's an or if if they're having trouble, some kids get matching colors easily. They, once right. you show them purple goes in purple and red goes in red, they do it. But other kids, you know, if you have too just, many colors. And take. I'll just say, if you have a two-and-a-half-year-old that's not matching colors, that's a cognitive delay. There's mm-hmm. no other way to talk about it or think about it. And in the past, I might not have said it as strongly, but sitting, someone said that. Amy Weatherby said that when we were talking in, oh, I wasn't talking to her when she was talking to me in her <laughs> conference at Asha. Me and 400 of my closest friends. <laughs> uh, but she's really talked about when you have a child who, even if they have a language delay, uh, if they're not meeting the cognitive milestones, it's not just a language delay, it's a cognitive delay, too. And that needs to be identified. And sometimes I think we skirt around that. We don't talk about it. We say... You know, he's, it, we might have a child who's not matching or not sorting at two and a half. It's a big deal because they should have been doing that, again, before they turned two. On your test, it's, you know, really more like an 18-month skill. So mm-hmm. it's, it's something we have to help our kids learn. But, again, mm, don't, don't 
not call it what it is. It's a cognitive skill, and we need to have kids doing it. And, again, your point about matching colors is so important. When you're teaching colors, saying the color name comes last. They have to sort by color or match by color. Then they identify colors receptively, meaning which one is blue, which one is red, which one is yellow. Then saying those darn color names comes first. And lots of people screw up and try to, you know, want the kid to say red, red, or green, or whatever the color is, long before they should be able to. You know, long before, uh, there's no evidence this kid understands matching my color and they're screaming the color name, you know, like they're going to just bust out and say it. So we want right. to sure that we're about <clears throat> And it. a lot right. of um, parents, in particular, uh, think that's, oh, this is really academic, I'm going to teach the colors. And like you said, they're going. You're teaching five, six, seven colors at once, and the kid can't discriminate between three different colors. Well, a lot of so. times, I want to say when they're asking the mom, you know, especially if they're in my office and they're in the ball pit and they're holding up the ball, saying, "What color is it? What color is it?" And I'm saying, "Mom, we're just going for ball. We're not yeah. doing red, yellow, green, blue. Let's play ball. Let's learn <laughs> what a ball is." Because and yeah. people do work on colors way too early. And it is, you know, again, it's on the test. It is academic. But please don't work on it before a child has a really established basic vocabulary and so that they know ball or they know shoe before you're saying what color is it. So many of our little friends on the spectrum, they get stuck on colors because they're so visual. And so they label everything as a color name. Uh, yeah. Without what is even it? Red, consider- and it's a ball. Yeah. What is it? Red, right. and it's a shoe. What is it? Right. Red. It, yeah, it's a car. Right. Yeah. But everything is the color. Yeah. And so I know I I've become hypersensitive about teaching colors, but I do think cognitively, you know, the matching aspect. And normally, if you do use some kind of a key, I also do matching with the ball, the hammer and ball toy, some um, with colors. I do that too, and you know, you know that uh, teach activity with the popsicle stick. Right, that's a good one. It's Mm -hmm. a good one because it real that toy, well, homemade, you know, one dollar of a toy, uh, really teaches a lot of things. I mean, I would never really use that for color teaching or or matching. When I'm doing that kind of activity with a kid, I'm thinking about attention and staying with me and completing a task. Versus can they color match, but a lot of our little guys that that activity is so great for, those are kids who are on the spectrum, even if they're not diagnosed, and we're using their little splinter skill and their interest, which is matching by color, but making it a simple enough task that they will sit through it. And again, if you're a therapist and you've not yet made yourself a mayonnaise jar with slots in the plastic top with some colored popsicle sticks, that's another thing that you need to Pop in Walmart or the Dollar Tree on your way home and pick up some popsicle sticks and dig out an empty uh, container from under your, you know, in your shelf tonight. And yeah, make I that just bought toy. a plastic jar at Dollar Tree for a dollar and the colored popsicle sticks at Dollar Tree for a dollar, so it was two dollars. And yeah. drilled some holes in it and used a permanent marker to color the color on the top. Yeah, and yeah, I you know I've said to you a new, number of times, Laura. I've had a number of kids really enjoy doing that. I, they really there's something highly shocked. reinforcing yeah. about dropping the popsicle <laughs> stick into the little plastic jar. Kids really like it. 
And then a lot of times there's years, kids who have problems with focus. It totally is. And a few years ago, I don't know that I would have thought that either, but then our little guy that we saw together who is uh, really um, severely, his his uh, severity range would be severe on the spectrum, really close to three, could hardly get him to play with regular toys at all, and the psychologist introduced a lot of those highly visual activities from teach, and he did better with those things than he did with any other material that we could have used. And that one child really made me a believer in mm-hmm. so many of those activities. And I think that I think back with you know a handful of other kids over my career that I think, boy, I wish I could see that Zachary again, or I wish I could see you know, William again, or I wish I could, you know, whatever the kid's name used to be. And just in case people are concerned about HIPAA, I changed the kid's names then, okay? But anyway. <laughs> they were made-up names, think... <laughs> real kids, made-up names. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I wish that I, I would have paid more attention to that portion of my training because I never have seen those activities before. But that little guy a couple of years ago made a huge believer out of thing or a year ago, however long ago we saw him, in that in those kinds of activities, and I had really incorporated those into kind of a well. And you know, the, Laura, the I've even been surprised with kids who uh, didn't really need it as as a way to encourage them to do something focused and and um, functional, but just more typically developing kids than that, even even they like it pretty well. I just there's something really kind of fun about sticking those popsicle sticks into the jar. And I really wouldn't have anticipated that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That whole sorting and categorizing and I think it's a lot of those adult- kids, yeah, they know they get the matching the colors. Right. You know, like but even before then. Mhm. Yeah. But even before then, you can use it with with that. One of my little upcoming videos that I'm doing with this Christmas therapy guide new thing that we're doing, I'm going to do a video and a a downloadable handout and walk through some of those those activities for Christmas-related things. And if you're listening and you're a therapist and you have no idea what I'm talking about or you've never taken the time to think about those things or use those things, I hope that you'll get that unit because it really is critical information and and another tool and another strategy that I think that we as early interventionists need available to us. And for some kids, it's where we need to start. For some kids that who, who have not made progress on any other activity, I think if you can shift your focus and do a lot of that, you'll start to see some progress in other areas so that you'll transition some of that attention and some of that focus and again some of that cognition stuff will start to come on in and then you can move forward a little bit but I'm a huge believer in that I've got some great references on that too to make it evidence-based practice for those of you who are concerned about that as well but it's um I'm so glad that I started to really pay attention to that and again that's just been something that I've really added in the last couple of years and it isn't it amazing what one kid can teach you you know we're there to really teach them but sometimes the lessons we learn from our little friends and from our families um are pretty darn important too okay well once again for those people who try to stay on the treadmill the whole time you can step off <laughs> you've got your 72 minutes yeah all right next week we're going to be back with a guest I hope, 
I know. I'm not quite sure which guest it'll be, but I've got to wait to work One it out. One of our three fun upcoming guests. They all sound great. All right. Okay, thanks, thanks so Laura. Bye. Bye.